Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Wednesday, and welcome to another day of the 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. And on today's program, we've got a lot to talk about, and we're looking at two different periods in church history that have had a big influence on who we are today as Catholics, as Christians, and even just as citizens of the world. And in the first hour, we're looking at the Reformation. But to be more specific, it's the Reformations, plural. Al has pointed out many times over the years how it's really inaccurate to just refer to the Reformation. And as Carlos Ayer points out, if you just think of that one event of uh, Luther nailing his 95 Thesis to the church door in uh, Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, that's missing the point, even if that didn't really happen. And Ayer uh, questions whether or not that happened in the way that we imagine it. But then Ayer also talks about how there's a lot of other things going on in this period of history. You've got increasing conflict between reformers such as Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, and the traditions that flowed from them. You've got the Anabaptists, the heirs of the so-called Radical Reformation, who we know today as the Amish and the Mennonites. You've got the Catholic response to Luther, referred to as the Counter-Reformation. And you've got other things like the Waldensians, beginning in France, who embraced poverty, a whole lot of other stuff going on. But to this day, a lot of people, even ac academic people, refer to the Reformation in the singular. And this really irritates Carlos Ayer, because he says this isn't just a little matter of hair splitting. This isn't just getting technical in the words. If you refer to Reformation in the singular, you're really missing the big overall point of what happened during that couple of centuries. And uh, he also writes, we cannot begin to comprehend who we are as Westerners without first understanding the changes brought on by the Reformations in the early modern era. And that is essentially the title of his book, Reformations, the Early Modern World from 1450 to 1650. It's about 700 pages long, and as you can imagine, we're not even going to get close to covering it all in this hour, but we do touch on some of the greater themes looking at how these different reformations affected who we are today. That's coming out all throughout this hour at number 23 in the Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. And then at number 22, we look at one of our most popular saints, St. Francis, uh, known for many things, including some things he probably didn't actually say. And our uh, good friend Bill Cook in town with us during the time of this interview to takes a deep dive into getting to know St. Francis. All of that coming up after this news break. Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, December 20th. It's the Feast of St. Dominic of Silos. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Donald Trump plans to file an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court after the GOP frontrunner was banned from Colorado's 2024 presidential ballot. The Democrat-controlled Colorado Supreme Court ruled in a 4-3 party-line vote Trump's involvement in the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol riot was a violation of the 14 Amendments insurrection ban. The former president called the ruling a completely flawed decision. The war between Israel and Hamas is raging on in the Gaza Strip. The political leader of Hamas is in Cairo today to talk with Egyptian leaders about the Israeli hostages and a possible ceasefire. This comes as Israeli President Isaac Herzog said on Tuesday the country is willing to engage in talks for another humanitarian pause. A vote on President Biden's request for Ukraine aid will have to wait until 2024. 
Congress this week was unable to strike a deal on funding for Kyiv and border security before the end of the year. The White House said today negotiations are going in the right direction, but Congress needs to act swiftly in January. And officials in Iceland say lava from an erupting volcano appears to be flowing away from a nearby town. The rumbling volcano south of Reykjavik finally erupted late Monday, spewing lava and smoke hundreds of feet into the air. A government statement on Tuesday said the intensity of the eruption was starting to drop and that it does not present a threat to life. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. The best, 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 best of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 23. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, the Reformation is one of the most misunderstood and challenging periods in the Western history, and even the use of the singular Reformation creates distortion. There was not one Reformation. There were multiple Reformations, and uh, they had influenced each other. My guest, though, has produced a wonderful volume, 800 pages, called Reformations, plural, the Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650. And Dr. Carlos Ayer is Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University, where he specializes in the social, intellectual, religious, and cultural history of late medieval and early modern Europe, with a focus on the Protestant and Catholic Reformations. Uh, also, the history of popular piety, history of the supernatural, the history of death. He uh, is the author of the book that I referred to earlier, called Reformations, the Early Modern World. And uh, most recently, They Flew, A History of the Impossible. He also uh, authored Waiting for Snow in Havana, which won the National Book Award in 2003, and tells the story of his childhood in Cuba before he settled in the United States. Uh, Dr. Ayer, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. Well, thanks for the invitation. Very glad to be here with you. Uh, you know, these, I've always wondered, having read a little bit in the 16th century, why did we end up calling it the Reformation, when in fact, you know, historians have always known there were multiple movements uh, that made it up. Why Why do they call it the Reformation? You know, we have well, medieval it, period, the it, Renaissance, the Reformation. It's convenient. Right. but it, Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's basically, it, it started out as a, a, a Protestant uh, term. Protestant historiography claimed the term uh, solely for the the Protestant break from the Catholic Church, even though you know Catholics uh, throughout the Middle Ages have been constantly reforming, and, and the, right. the Latin term reformatio mm -hmm. or renovatio, you know, renovation, uh, was commonly used all the time. Religious orders were always renovating and reforming themselves, and the Church as a whole was too. But in the Reformation, it's it's the the writing, you know, as they say the the winners write history. <laughs> so in those areas that became monolithically Protestant, uh, and there were many, a whole chunk of Northern Europe became monolithically Protestant, uh, the, their historians uh, claimed the term Reformation. <laughs> uh, I think it's kind of funny, like humorous, uh, there's a humorous quality to it, that 
uh, at this very same period, beginning in the 16th century, Catholic historians always referred to Protestantism, of course, as a heresy. But more than that, they used the term revolt. Yeah. You know, it was a revolt. And um, lo and behold, uh, I finished college exactly 50 years ago, 1973, at Loyola, Chicago. Mm -hmm. And the, the Reformation course, which was taught by a, a Jesuit professor I loved dearly, uh, who passed away just a few years ago, Robert Byerly, uh, the course had, had this term, the Catholic Reformation and the Protestant Revolt. <laughs> uh, and uh, Professor Byerly, Father Byerly, went on to write a wonderful book about the Catholic Reformation, uh, also okay. uh, called, uh, the title is The Refashioning of Catholicism. Pretty good. You point out, your book says uh, early modern world, 1450 to 1650, so you're not starting in 1517, uh, the Luther date when he, uh, no, he uh, no, names I, his theses. It, you know, it, is this, is this uh, becoming common I, now to start oh, talking? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Definitely. Actually, the, the what has happened in the last 50 years but more, more specifically in the last 25, is that the writing of the history of this period is no longer dominated by confessional historians. That is, historians who are writing to prove that their church did the correct thing. Right, right. It, it's, fallen, it's fallen out of use completely to um, write any kind of even vaguely polemical history of any of the reformations. And uh, sadly, uh, also in these past 25 years, but especially in the last 15, the study of reformations, plural, is slowly dying. Really? And vanishing, yes. Is that because people don't believe in the potency of religious ideas? That's part of it. You know, at public universities, certainly. You know, any, any, any course uh, on Christianity is, is going to rub many people the wrong way. Mm -hmm. um, at uh, Christian universities, Christian colleges, Protestant and Catholic, the period itself is moving out of focus, hmm. uh, so that uh, you know. Sadly, I last year uh, there were only in all of North America about five job openings for people with PhDs in this period. Wow! And none of them, none of those five, were advertised as Reformation or Reformation. They were advertised as, you know, early modern. Early modern, yeah. And most of them actually required that the person who, uh, who could apply for this job and get it had to do more than Europe. They had to do uh, uh, transatlantic history mm. or global history. Wow. In addition to, because, you know, Europe is evil, Christianity yeah. is evil. And we can't focus on that. Yeah. And seminaries, too, have given up on teaching uh, Reformation. Okay. So, I mean, uh, 
Your book makes the point, though, that you can't understand our world today if you don't of understand course, yeah. these events. Of course, yes. I, I absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I tried hard <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to make that clear in every chapter of the book to try to tie it to, you know, what, what, what's the significance of all this stuff for us now. But in many ways, we are uh, still living with let me stop that sentence and start a completely no, different okay, one. Go to that. <laughs> Amnesia is one of the worst things that could happen to any person to lose their memory. Right. Uh, and now that's the devastating thing for individuals and families who have to deal with uh, family members who develop Alzheimer's. What happens is they no longer know who they are. They no longer know who anybody else is. Yeah. And that's, why the study of history is so important but the fact that the religious unity of the western christian world was shattered in the 16th century yeah. is still affecting us yeah uh it, it, and it, has, it it will continue to affect us for some time to come even though church memberships are shrinking and even though there's one positive development, which in the Catholic world began with the Second Vatican Council, ecumenism. Yeah, yes. You know, that um, we're, we're no longer uh, killing each other yeah. <laughs> or, right. or even shouting insults at each other. But, you know, we, we cooperate and try to show love toward yeah. uh, each other despite our difference. A firm or common baptism. Um, you know, uh, no, I think that's uh, wonderful, and I, I think for Catholics in particular, uh, this is part of what it means to be a faithful Catholic, is to work, uh, to recover yeah. as much common ground as we can. And absolutely, uh, you know, within the Catholic fold, every Catholic, at one point, some point, usually early in life, becomes aware of the fact that within the Catholic fold, there are a variety of <laughs> That's <opinions>. true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Very true. L- let me ask you, you start back in 1450, in you know the, the time of the printing press. Uh, yes. But I wanted to ask you about, about the state uh, of the Church at that time. I mean, the popular impression is that the Catholic Church on the eve of the Reformation was wickedly corrupt, an object of loathing. Uh, but I'm wondering... Was late medieval Christianity decadent or lacking in religious participation? Uh, were there no devotional sensibilities? And did that differ between clergy well, and laity? Well, um, there are differences of opinion among scholars because it depends on what you're looking at. Okay. But uh, according to some indices, such as confraternity memberships, Mm-hmm. Confraternities were enormously significant in medieval Europe. We have lost that in, in the Catholic tradition. Uh, but uh, me- membership in confraternities and the creation of confraternities, these are lay associations devoted to various things from purely uh, devotional uh, preoccupations, such as uh, celebrating Corpus Christi. Mm-hmm or uh, establishing orphanages and hospitals, yeah. charitable works, and so on. 
membership in confraternities skyrockets in the late 15th century. Wow. And so do the number of confraternities. And more than that, um, the amount of money being funneled into church decorations also skyrockets. Mm, interesting. And it's because, you know, around 1400, the European society starts to become ever more prosperous. Mm-hmm. And, and it's one of the things that, you know, kicks in the beginning of what we now call the modern world and the Renaissance, the rebirth of, you know, of learning and interest in classical culture. You need money for these things. Right, right. Uh, your, your culture or society needs to have a certain amount of wealth uh, for education to spread and for literacy to spread. But the fact is, uh, there are many indications that there were not only more confraternities and more gifts to churches, but when the printing press is invented in 1450, what kind of books are being published? Well, all kinds of books, but the vast majority of them are devotional texts. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Hold it there. We've got to take a break. I want to come back and sure. uh, continue to unpack that question because I think it's important that people get a feel for what uh, condition of the church was uh, at that time. My guest, Dr. Carlos Ayer, is the author of Reformations, the Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650. It's an outstanding book and a great read. Father Benedict Groeschel. I don't think people should have negative fears of God, but I think you should get a lump in your throat. You should feel excited. Suppose I was going to take you and introduce you to the Pope or to the president of some country or something. You might get a lump in your throat. Forget it. Every day, you, I, live and move and have our being in the presence of God. These are the class of feelings we should have, and we should have them to an intense degree if we really had the sight of Almighty God. These feelings are the feelings which we shall have if we realize His presence, and in proportion as we believe that He is present, we shall have them, and not to have them is not to realize, not to believe, that God is present to us. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. When we ask our Father to give us this day our daily bread, are we merely asking for daily nourishment? We are, says the Catholic Catechism, indeed asking the Father who gives us life for the material and spiritual nourishment which life requires. But we are asking for much more. Those who seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness, God has promised to give all else besides. Since everything belongs to God, he who possesses God possesses everything, if he himself is not found wanting before God. The drama of hunger in the world, therefore, calls upon all Christians to exercise responsibility toward their needy brethren, both in their behavior and in their solidarity with the human family. This petition also applies to another hunger from which people are perishing, thirst for the word of the Lord and for Catholics receiving his body in the Eucharist, which is our daily bread. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. 
All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. The best, 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 best of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 23. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Carlos Ayer, author of Reformations, The Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650. We're taking a look at that incredibly uh, chaotic but creative period in our Western history. And before the break, we were talking about the state of the Church on the eve of the Reformation. I asked, was late medieval Christianity decadent or lacking in religious participation or devotional sensibilities? And... Well, if you take a look at confraternities, you take a look at money being spent on refurbishing uh, churches, uh, people were, were into it. What was, the, what was the complaint about the church at the time then? Well, there, there was a lot of corruption, you know, almost everywhere one looked. Okay. One could find instances of things not being done properly. Um, and of individuals uh, taking advantage of the the looseness of authority, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about um, regular clergy, you know, members of religious orders, or secular clergy, parish clergy. Mm-hmm. There, there were there were a lot of rules that were not being observed. Okay, for instance, um, priests. Uh, uh, especially uh, parish priests who did not uh, fulfill their vow of celibacy. Okay. Fairly common. As a matter of fact, in some dioceses, the bishops uh, had a special tax. They would tax their clergy for uh, for each child they had. Oh, mercy. And it was, in some places, a a very good source of income for the bishops. (laughs) So they did nothing to stop it. 
And there were many privileged families and privileged individuals who held church positions and and didn't actually have much of a vocation, if any at all. And the clergy who were the hardest to reform were uh, cathedral canons. That is, the the clergy in, in the cathedrals, the bishops' clergy, because they all came from the most powerful families, and boy, they resisted it. Okay. And reforming was dangerous. We have, as part of part of the history of the Catholic Reformation, is bishops who tried to reform their clergy, and their clergy tried to kill them. Yeah, yeah. I think Charles Borromeo was shot in the back by a priest, of forget what order he belonged to, but he, you know, he was trying to reform them, and this priest shot him in the back. Yeah, but wow. his liturgical vestments were so thick, and and you know this is early on. The, the gun was not powerful enough. The bullet bounced off his back, but it left a terrible bruise on him. <laughs> Mercy. And some clergy tried to poison their bishops with the communion wine. This this is the situation. Yeah. I mean, and there were a lot of complaints about corruption, but there were also many people trying to. Well, then, the earlier Catholic attempts at reform were stifled because of these, I guess, these uh, people who were embedded in authoritative positions. Yeah. Why did Luther's uh, complaint gain momentum? Well, it it gained momentum uh, for several reasons. But I think the main reason it gained momentum was that um, a lot of rules that the Catholic Church had, uh, for instance, fasting, mm-hmm. um, having to go to confession, confess one's sins, uh, and uh, a number of others, uh, celibacy for priests and so on, all of these were done away with. But that was not Luther's principal intention when he began to complain in 1517. His initial complaint was purely theological. Yeah. It had yeah. to do with how one is saved. The, the, the subject in, in theology, Christian theology, known as soteriology, mm-hmm. or how one is saved. Luther's initial complaints were about a technical point, indulgences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Part of that complaint was about the money that people were spending for their dead relatives in purgatory. Uh, Luther uh, uh, very quickly ends up, as he's pushed against the wall, uh, denies the existence of purgatory. So you see a continual emptying of... So he... He denies the value of indulgences. He ends up denying the value of purgatory, and eventually works its way up, right, to the papacy. Oh yeah, to everything. And and you know, the the, the his his main complaint about the, the soteriology of the late medieval Catholic Church was that it was all about counting your actions, yeah, counting your sins, counting your good charitable works, and. Turning God into an, uh, uh, some some kind of uh, 
calculating machine mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. weighed your good things versus your bad things. So he said, no, that's not what it's about. It's saved by faith alone. But yeah. that that opened up the, 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 a can of worms. And it went from one point to another, and uh, he begins his protest in 1517, and by 15. 15- 19, when he is declared a heretic uh, by the Pope, he's already calling the Pope the Antichrist. Wow. Was he an apocalyptic thinker? Did, I mean, did, he, did he see he, the he end? Thought, yes. He thought, he thought that the reason that uh, he had come along, because he, he was constantly asked by, by Catholic uh, theologians and even by the Emperor himself, Emperor Charles V, who are you? To come along after fifteen hundred years and say that you know everything's been wrong, right, right. <laughs> and uh, Luther's position was that the end was near, okay. And, and he was here as as a prophet. He viewed himself as a prophetic figure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thought that the end was near. He did not put a date on it as some others would around him. Yeah, but uh, he was convinced that the end was near, and now the church was being restored. But politics had a lot to do with it, too. Yeah. Because uh, the main reason that he survived after he was excommunicated and after Emperor Charles V and the German Parliament pronounced him an outlaw, which means anyone could grab him and kill him with impunity, was that his local prince protected him. And uh, his followers began to gain the protection of princes, and in Germany and in Switzerland, uh, this is primarily in German-speaking areas, uh, in the cities, the cities were self-governing, and the burghers, well, let's call them the middle class and the upper middle class, mm-hmm. they began, uh, who had city councils and so on, began to vote themselves reformed yeah for protestant mm. and they managed to break away how, and how, i'm just wondering though how, how much of this was religiously motivated how much of it was politically motivated or commercially motivated i mean i, I know that's one of those large and lumpy questions you can speculate yeah, on, but I, yeah. uh, can we untangle uh those motives it's, no they cannot be untangled okay. it, it it all it, it all works together and um, you cannot separate the politics from the theology, and you cannot separate um, individuals into very neat categories. Yeah. Oh, the, the, these people were political. These people were more devotional. No, mm. as, as I have often said, you know, when when Protestants destroyed images, why did they do it? What was going on? And I, I, I have long argued that there were as many different reasons uh, behind people smashing images as there were number of people smashing images. Everyone could have their own reason. If I remember right, you wrote a whole book on this, didn't you? Wars on yeah, Idols? My, yeah, my first book. War yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that. Oh. And um, the same applies to every aspect of religious change uh, at any time but especially at this time, okay. because it happened so fast, is that there were multiple reasons for people breaking with the Catholic Church. 
And then there are some things that make you scratch your head, such as, for instance, uh, this one is, is the one that's made me scratch my head most intensely. Okay. Um, is that uh, artisans were organized into guilds, uh, sort of the equivalent of our modern labor union. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, in a city, uh, the guilds would align in, in along different lines. So, for instance, in one Swiss city, in Basel, the guild of butchers was 100% Catholic. The printers, 100% Protestant. <laughs> the other guilds, in between. <laughs> and then uh, something funny happened, for instance, in the city of Lyon in France where the Printers Guild became Protestant. And they actually led the way to uh, Lyon, um, not not the whole city, but a substantial portion of Lyon becomes Protestant. But then they they find out that um, their new Protestant church will not allow them to strike (laughs) (laughs) The, the apprentices. They're not allowed to strike because that's unchristian. So they they reconvert to Catholicism. <laughs> so how do you separate that? Yeah. How do you separate these things? Right. Uh, right. It's impossible. Um, you talk about uh, John Calvin and talk about Calvinism. You make a point in the book that um, Calvinism redefines the boundaries uh, between the human and the divine, the, the natural, the supernatural. How... Was that more obvious in the Reformed Calvinist tradition than it was in, say, the Lutheran tradition? Oh, yes, much more so. Luther was not interested in um, metaphysics. He was not interested in, in, in figuring out how the spiritual relates to the material. Okay. That was not his concern. But that is the central concern of the Reformed Protestant tradition, at least initially. Right? Um, and um, it makes them very different, Lutheran okay. and Reform. Well, we've got to take a break here. We'll come back and pick it up uh, from that distinction. Okay. My guest is uh, Dr. Carlos Ayer. Uh, he is uh, professor of history and religious studies at Yale and the author of an outstanding book, Reformations. Yes, plural, finally. Reformations, the early modern world, 1450 to 1650. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, teach me to pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, teach me to pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. 
consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mother Angelica said that the essence of evangelization is to tell everyone that Jesus loves you. Matt Frad says that it is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Are we so full of the things of the world that we can't hear or receive the gifts that God is giving to us? In Isaiah, we hear, The Lord delights in you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. Well, we often don't want to hear that, and in the Gospel of Matthew, it it hits us over the head even more that we're invited to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is king, and he's come to establish his kingdom. The Beatitudes are the eight roads to God. They lead us with his gifts of the Holy Spirit to become the new person in Christ who will find happiness and bring that happiness to others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Good discipline is an important part of raising healthy, happy, godly kids, but it can be hard to know what good discipline really looks like. St. John Bosco developed an approach to child rearing we call discipleship discipline. Discipleship discipline helps kids understand the good intentions behind their bad behaviors and gives them opportunities to learn and practice meeting those intentions in more virtuous, effective ways. Discipleship discipline helps kids come to see their parents as loving mentors who can help them meet all their needs in healthy, godly ways. That's one reason that discipleship discipline is such an important part of the liturgy of domestic church life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, Visit CatholicCounselors.com. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 23. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Carlos Ayer, author of Reformations, The Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650. Talking at the close of the last segment about Calvinism and uh, its legacy as a, kind of a redefining of the um, relationship between the natural and the supernatural, uh, you, their iconoclastic crusade, their getting rid of images, actually is a revolt against the whole medieval worldview, and they're emptying the world of much of its uh, supernatural sense. Um, some people call it the disenchantment of the world. Is that what? Yeah. Is that their intention? 
Well, yes, very much so. Okay. Um, they, they thought that, you know, religion, the, the Reformed tradition, um, to which Calvin belonged, and, and he became uh, its most influential theologian, uh, for them, yes, uh, religion that focused on physical points of contact with the spiritual or natural points of contact mm-hmm. with the supernatural, that was totally wrong. That was idolatry. And, and therefore, it had to be removed wherever possible, because um, unlike most uh, throughout most of its history, Catholicism from the first century to the 16th and to this very day it is a, a religion that considers uh, it possible right. for the physical, natural world to interact with the spiritual, supernatural world. Yeah. That's right. That there are so many points of contact, and especially when it comes to um, ritual, yeah. a sacrament, the sacraments, yeah, um, it, uh, material points of contact. It actually, you know, baptism uses water, uh, confirmation uses oil, uh, the, the Eucharist, and the, the extreme unction, especially those four. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Protestants retained baptism and the Eucharist and got rid of the other sacraments because they couldn't find them mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those two sacraments they retained had still physical points of contact with the divine. Some, but they, they interpreted uh, the water and the bread and wine as symbolic. Yeah. yeah. There was nothing divine or supernatural yeah. there. And especially when it came to the Eucharist, the communion, uh, yes, they, they spoke of communion. It was a purely spiritual communion. The bread and the wine themselves were, were symbols. They were not. They did not have. Christ was not present. Yeah. yeah. And this was a major disagreement between the Reformed Protestants and the Lutherans. Okay. Lutherans the, still Lutherans retained a real presence. They, yes. They, they. They. But they said, you can't explain it. <laughs> yeah. You can't even try to explain it, but, you know, Christ is there, really, yeah. physically. Uh, so there, there are shades, it's a spectrum of, of belief. Uh, at, at the most radical spectrum of the Protestant Reformation, you have individuals who not only think the sacraments are unnecessary, but the Church itself is unnecessary. Mm. And that's at the most radical fringe. But yeah. It is a spectrum. Uh, so, uh, but another thing that the Protestant Reformation does, and this applies to Lutherans uh, as well as all all others, is the belief in the cessation of miracles. Right? So miracles oh, are limited oh. to the Bible, the yes, apostolic right. period. The apostolic period, as soon as the last apostle died, and everybody agreed that was John. That was it. Yeah. No more miracles. So, of course, the New Testament is full of miracles, right. for heaven's sakes. In the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Peter's shadow cures sick people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and they said, yeah, of course, that was necessary to make people believe that the apost- that you know Jesus was the Savior and the apostles were, were his disciples, but they had this power. But after that, no, no, it, it stopped happening. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a very different worldview. I I call it a desacralization yeah. of the world. 
not not disenchantment because enchantment has to do with magic. Okay. And actually, uh, that was a, a pejorative term that Protestants in the 16th century used about Catholic ritual. Hmm. Was that it was all magic? Gotcha. That it oh, hocus pocus. Actually, the, there's debate about this, but some etymologies uh, trace the term hocus pocus to the consecration of the Eucharist in Latin. <laughs> hocus corpus meum. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so, uh, would any of the magisterial reformers have counted their reformations a success? Yes. Very much so. Although, what, by what measure, you know, of course they had succeeded. They had broken away from the, in Luther's term, the Church of the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually all Protestants saw the Catholic Church as deeply embedded in the demonic. Yeah, It was evil. So just the mere fact that they had broken away and established a church uh, that was more focused on the Bible and didn't have all this physical stuff. Yeah, that was that was a triumph. Did did they recognize but, any irony in that their efforts to purify and renew the church had succeeded in splintering it? Oh, that was always a sore point. But they were not you know, this was all happening so fast. Mm-hmm. And especially for the first generation, they 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 didn't have time or the peace of mind to focus on on these things. And then as, as the second and third generation come along, and, you know, they're, they're still uh, fracturing within each of the established Protestant churches, um, they begin to reflect on it. But there's no one, to my mind, I have yet to find any uh, theologian in, in the Protestant family from the 16th or 17th century who... Uh, has a cogent explanation or, or program for fixing this problem. Mm. Okay. I am right, you are wrong. Yeah. Basically. Were and, there any attempts fact, were, were there any attempts in the first generation to like the Marburg Colloquy to try to find unity among Protestants? Numerous occasions okay. where people came together to discuss their differences of opinion, but none of them worked. Yeah, and and the last uh, last of these attempts was in 1561 in Poissy, in France, and um, it was uh, it just didn't work. And after that, they just simply stopped trying. Yeah, to, yeah. to reach some. And, and actually, at the Marburg Colloquy, which you mentioned, was very early, 1529. Um, they agreed. On 13 points, the Lutherans and the Reformed, but they could not agree on the Eucharist. The the wars of religion that the Thirty Years' War is, how responsible is that for the secularization of Europe? Well, the, the war itself is a symptom of larger problems. That, and situations that lead to secularization, because the the Thirty Years' War is, is actually comes in kind of late. There have been many other religious wars before 1618. Mm-hmm. France, from 1562 to 1598, it, 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 it's a it's a 
unparalleled bloodbath of French people killing each other over religion. Yeah. Protestants and Calvinists. I mean, pro- Protestants and Catholics uh, killing each other. Uh, and and the problem doesn't go away in 1598 when, when a peace is, is reached. Uh, as the Thirty Years' War, which begins in 1618, uh, begins uh, over religious issues, and it begins uh, in Prague, in you know, present-day Czechia, um, where you still had these medieval heretics, Hussites. To the Hussites, yeah. Who had okay, become John had become, they, they were on the Protestant side. But it begins there, but by the end of the war in 1648, it is not really by the end, by 30 years of constant fighting and, and, and killing. It, 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 well, you could still call it a religious war, but it has lost its religious flavor. Yeah. Why? Because by 1648, actually, all of this, uh, my theory is that, um, well, my theory is basically, by 1648, all of this disagreeing, and especially all the killing, has forced the people to tolerate each other. Yeah. yeah. And uh, business is business in places especially where Catholics and Protestants are living in close proximity to each other, you're a business person. Are, are you not going to sell your goods to Protestants? Right, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so on and so forth. Um, and, and the place where, the, there were many places where toleration actually was practiced. But the one place where it was most intensely practiced, the first place where it was most intensely practiced, was the Netherlands, where the rigid, li- religious situation was very fluid. Uh, it, it, it's a small republic, and it's fighting against uh, Spain because the Spanish crown claimed it. So the Netherlands is very much part of the Thirty Years' War. Mm. Actually, the re- rebellion against Spain is not finally confirmed uh, as successful until 1648. But by that time, what do you have in the Netherlands? Well, you have you have areas, cities uh, such as Amsterdam, where uh, Catholics can't attend mass; they just can't have churches. <laughs> mm. They can turn a house into a church and go in the back door, but it can't look like a church. Wow! But they can go; they can go to mass, mm. and Jews can have their synagogues. The same yeah. thing, uh, and. By 1648, you have out-and-out skepticism and out-and-out atheism among the intelligentsia, yeah. but also among common people, too. Okay. So this, just, yeah. so this, this war, of, war of religious ideas leads, then, to unbelief. It, it, it does. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, uh, it, there are also practical considerations, uh, which is, uh, how can you just conduct life on a day-to-day basis with with all this mayhem? Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to make any comparisons to present-day Ukraine and what's happening there. But the horrors 
of these religious wars were, were comparable in a different scale back then. Mm-hmm. There were areas of Germany that, during the Thirty Years' War, lost over 50% of the population. Wow. wow. Either to, you know, actual death or having to relocate. Uh, the refugee problem is not a new thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, two of my doctoral students have written their dissertations on, uh, you know, Protestant refugees in different cities. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ayer, let me thank you again for the work into the book. I love the book. I've been reading it and will continue to read it. Uh, and um, I hope we can talk well, again you. in the future. Oh, sure. Anytime. All Anytime. right. Anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for all the great questions, too. Dr. Carlos Ayer is author of Reformations. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. Isn't it awesome that we today do not recognize his presence in the Eucharist? Is it because we really don't go to him in humbleness of heart and say, Lord, I don't believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I want to see you. I want to recognize you. I cannot live without you. Are we saying that? EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Thank you for joining us in that hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. Hoping you enjoyed uh, number 23 in our countdown, the uh, looking at the Reformation's impact on our world today. Carlos Ayer's book, of course, is available in the online bookstore at AveMariaRadio.net. And in the next hour, we get to know St. Francis. Uh, it's really This is a really fun interview. Bill Cook, who we've spoken to many times over the years, was here in Ann Arbor back in the fall to celebrate the Feast of St. Francis at a parish named for St. Francis and uh, gave several talks. It was a great time. And he also had a chance to drop by the studio and we got to know him face to face after speaking over the phone for so many years. And uh, we'll be exploring the life of St. Francis in the next hour. Before we go there, real quick, we can't forget to give a congratulations out to another member 
of the EWTN radio family. Divine Mercy Radio in Kansas, celebrating 13 years with us. Congratulations to Lester and Donetta Robin, Nathan Lang, and everybody else at Divine Mercy Radio in Kansas from all of your friends at Ave Maria Radio and EWTN. And we have got another week where every day we're giving out a congratulations to somebody else either having an anniversary or expanding their work. And uh, the work of Catholic Radio continues to grow and thrive thanks to all the support from people like you listening right now. Keep us in your prayers. We'll be praying for you. And we'll be back with more on next hour's Cresta in the Afternoon. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of this Wednesday edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, continuing our 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. And if you were to stop somebody on the street and say, name a Catholic saint, who do you think they would say? They might say St. Valentine, but most most likely they would say St. Francis or St. Patrick. And then if you were to say, tell me something about that saint, the one saint that could probably, everybody can probably tell you something about is St. Francis, known for uh, his Make Me a Channel of Your Peace, known for his love of animals. And if you ask some people, they would say known for his... Uh, quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. As we've spoken about before in the past, he never actually said that, and he actually would have disagreed with that point, but that's kind of beside the point right now. But we talk about his love for creation. There's a World Animal Day that is observed on his feast day, but there's a lot more to him than that. And uh, Bill Cook joining us with a look at his life and how St. Francis inspired his own work with poor children around the world. Because uh, Bill Cook, Professor Emeritus of History at State University of New York, Geneseo, where he taught medieval and Renaissance Europe and church history, and also hosts nine different great course lecture series, including an outstanding one on the cathedral and another on the lives of the great saints. And besides all of that academic work, Bill is also the president of the Bill Cook Foundation, which helps poor children in 29 countries around the world go to school. And he got into that work after getting to know the life of St. Francis. And he talks about that somewhat in this interview. Now, we actually wish that we had more to share with you. We, we talked with him off the air, and he gave us some other stories about his work that didn't quite make it into this interview. But it's just this is a person who understands his calling into the academic life and also understands his calling to serve the Lord. And so we're very excited to have Bill Cook joining us in this interview over the next hour, getting to know St. Francis after this news break. Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, December 20th. It's the Feast of St. Dominic of Silos. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing love and care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Donald Trump plans to file an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court after the GOP frontrunner was banned from Colorado's 2024 presidential ballot. 
The Democrat-controlled Colorado Supreme Court ruled in a 4-3 party-line vote Trump's involvement in the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol riot was a violation of the 14th Amendment's insurrection ban. The former president called the ruling a completely flawed decision. The war between Israel and Hamas is raging on in the Gaza Strip. The political leader of Hamas is in Cairo today to talk with Egyptian leaders about the Israeli hostages and a possible ceasefire. This comes as Israeli President Isaac Herzog said on Tuesday the country is willing to engage in talks for another humanitarian pause. A vote on President Biden's request for Ukraine aid will have to wait until 2024. Congress this week was unable to strike a deal on funding for Kyiv and border security before the end of the year. The White House said today negotiations are going in the right direction, but Congress needs to act swiftly in January. And officials in Iceland say lava from an erupting volcano appears to be flowing away from a nearby town. The rumbling volcano south of Reykjavik finally erupted late Monday, spewing lava and smoke hundreds of feet into the air. A government statement on Tuesday said the intensity of the eruption was starting to drop and that it does not present a threat to life. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 22. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Today we observe the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, I know the Irish like to claim St. Patrick, but I think uh, really St. Francis goes down as probably the best-known saint, uh, you know, outside the church, um, maybe the Blessed Mother, you know, you never know these things. But um, St. Francis does have a certain uh, image uh, throughout the world, and uh, and people know him for his love of creation. Uh, He's even the inspiration for World Animal Day. Uh, There's a lot more to him than that. We're going to talk about it with my guest, Dr. William Cook, who's Professor Emeritus of History at State University of New York, Geneseo, where he taught medieval and Renaissance Europe and church history. He's the president of the Bill Cook Foundation, which we're going to talk about today. He's been helping poor children in 29 countries go to school. And it's great to have you in studio after so many phone interviews over the years. That's right. After all that, we actually only met once for about 20 seconds, I think. So yeah. it's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Let's, uh, let's start, though, because I, I want to make sure we don't neglect talking about the foundation. Uh, I've mentioned it a few times on the air but what does the Bill Cook Foundation do, and how did it get started? Let me tell you a brief story and wave yeah. to me after I've been talking for two hours, okay? <laughs> okay? I was running a program for college professors in Italy in 2008 about St. Francis. We were in Siena, Italy, where I ha- happened to have an apartment. And every day I walked to class to prepare my lessons for these other professors on St. Francis. And one day I noticed a beggar on the street. And I went over and kind of very delicately dropped a coin in his hand. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, I put a coin in his hand, and we'd start to talk. He was a a teenage uh, Roma person, uh, you know, uh, the old old term being gypsy. Okay. And uh, he was sort of brought there by his parents, and he and all of his family had to go beg while the parents sat in the van. So anyway, one day when I came by to give him his euro, he didn't stand up to talk to me. Hmm. And I sat down with him on the street in Siena, 
and saw the world from his perspective. Wow. And I saw people ignore him. They wouldn't look at him. I saw them, again, do what I did the first day, drop a coin, but oh, so gently. And others just sort of wagged their heads. He looked like a normal kid. Why isn't this kid having a job? Why isn't he in school? Right, right. And I knew just a little bit about him from the times we had sort of communicated. And I I saw how wrong that was and how it's very important not just to hand somebody a coin, as important as that is. You really need to do things. Because... You know, it's it's the old thing. You, you feed somebody and tomorrow they're hungry, but there are certain things you can do also to try to prevent their hunger for a long, long time, education being one of them. Sure. And so when I retired four years later, that was one of the inspirations, and I'm happy to say that his older sister, who's also crippled in addition to having to beg in the streets, has two children, and we have them both in school in Slovakia. Wow. So that's one of our first things that we did. And so, you know, as I say, it, it's, it's good to do things for a day at a time, but you want to do good that lasts. Yeah. And education lasts. And so this is one of the thrills of me. I, I go visit them in Slovakia every couple of years. And I'm always so happy to see him because that was that's sort of in my heart, the beginning place. That's that's magnificent. I so you you went beyond though the immediate need there. You saw you had a got a bigger picture. How do you go about doing that, though? Because you're in 29 countries now. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm very fortunate in this sense. I've done a lot of work for a company, for an organization of CEOs from around the world okay. called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. Okay. And what they do, among many other things, is they have big international events where it's lectures in the morning, site visits in the afternoon, and big parties in the evening. Okay. Emphasize the latter. <laughs> and so I was invited once uh, at, a, at one of these conferences in Prague, and they like me, so they keep inviting me back. So that was 21 years ago. So I've had a lot of exposure to a lot of rich people. Yeah. And I, I, I love, you know, $10 donors a month. Sure. $10, and you need a lot of them. Yeah. But I have people I can kind of call and say, we got sort of an emergency. We really need to send $13,000 yeah. to Cameroon right now. Gotcha. Which they may or may not have ever heard of, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then I tell them why. And to a large extent, they are happy to respond. Yeah. They trust me with their money, yeah. and the money goes to Cameroon. Doesn't go. I don't have a salary. My we, our staffs all volunteers, and so we're really able to do a great deal of good. And I have connections all over the world. And I work with Franciscans a lot, for example, yeah. in Kenya, especially. I work with Augustinians in the Philippines. We also work with Muslims in sure. Bangladesh. Okay, and we work with Protestants in, in of all places, Panama. <laughs> we work with the Protestant Home for Girls. Sure. So we like to work with people on the ground. We trust them. They know what the kids need more than I do. I can't go in and say, you know what you need? You need a great big fill in the blank. They say, no, actually, we need worn clothes for the kids so mm. they can walk to school and not freeze to death. Yeah. You know, and, and I've, I've learned that to trust the people on the ground. They know what the, they're doing. They, they're closest. That's the whole principle of subsidiarity. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So so I've, I've, I've learned to do that. And uh, but it really is the the sort of Franciscan inspiration, because, you know, when Francis first met a leper, he was repelled. He tells this on his deathbed. He dictates this. But the second time he met a leper, obviously, after some reflection and prayer, he embraced the leper. And he said, after that, it was not hard to leave the world, Mm. not meaning physically, but meaning leave the world's values. Yes. And um, that. That resonates with me. Yeah. And I understand that, and I understand it now in a way I probably never understood it fully when I was teaching it. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's beautiful, though, how this gr- really does grow out of your devotion to St. Francis. It does. Uh, yeah. The, I mean, uh, it, it it's, been, it's got great cohesion to it. Right. It would have yeah. been inconceivable 
had I not known a lot and really was inspired to do St. Francis. I wrote a book on early art of St. Francis, and I was looking for all the images of Francis done in Italy within a hundred years. And one of the things I realized is there's no one visual interpretation any more than there is a written interpretation. Yeah. Because if you've got 150 stories and you've got 10 panels on a painting, yeah. you're going to tell the story from what you see as the essence of it, picking out those stories. Some are always there, like the stigmatization, mm -hmm. but many of them are unique because of the unique situation of the artist and the sponsor and the church in which it's located. And so, in a sense, uh, I, I've, been, I've, I've been looking at the way different people look at St. Francis at the same time, that is, say, in the 13th, 14th centuries, and so that's that's sort of what I do, too. I, yeah. I look at Francis differently. He's a very different saint to me than he was 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And he, he has that uh, capacity to refract uh, Christ's light in different ways. He, do, he does. And, you know, the, 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 the great dramatic event where he strips himself naked before the bishop because he, he's sort of given up on the army. And he's rebuilt three churches. So obviously physically rebuilding churches was not the end goal of his life, and he, his father doesn't like him sort of using some of the family money to help poor people, and so the father says, you know, give me back everything that's mine, and Francis did. He took off all his clothes in front of the bishop and stood there, and the paintings always show the bishops are very embarrassedly wrapping a cloak around him, but but the, the point is what he says. He said, I used to think of my father as, as, as Pietro di Bernardone, but now I say that my father is our father who art in heaven. Interesting. And I was take, I was saying that to some kids this morning at St. Francis of Assisi Parish. Think about what that means, because from this, he draws this love of birds and whatever, because if God made me and God made that bird, that makes us brother and sister. Yeah, yeah. And, and all of that, I mean, you know, Francis is not a scholar. I, I sometimes describe him as a guy with an eighth grade education and a B-minus Latin student. <laughs> but... But he really got it. Yeah, uh, you know, he, yeah. he really got it, and he was able to live it and express it. And so I find, and you know, as an academic who writes books, right. this is a real challenge. There's a passage in in Bonaventure's life where a friar comes to say, uh, "Are the friars allowed to study?" Meaning at university. Mm -hmm. And Francis says, "Yes, as long as they are doing it for the purpose of becoming better, and not simply, I would say, to win points." Yeah. Yeah, and as an academic for forty-two years, I know that temptation. Oh, uh, good heavens! It's a very combative area. It, the, it, the academic it really world, is. People trying to get ahead. Yep, absolutely. And and so that that's something I had to come back to when I retired, saying, you know, I did this wonderful life. I wrote books. I taught classes. I love every minute of it, and I ain't finished yet. Yeah, that's, I'm just yeah. not finished. And I wanted to retire when I knew I or hoped I had some years ahead of me. I didn't want to go from the classroom to the home. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I chose 68 as my retirement age, and I'm going to be 80 in a couple months, and we're <laughs> still going. Still, you're still going we're strong. We're still going. Praise God. That's great. Uh, when did you first get drawn to St. Francis? Very interesting. I did my dissertation on a Hussite theologian working in Prague months after the Soviet invasion in 1969. <laughs> okay. And I went back a couple times to do research. And, you know, and wrote some articles and, of course, did my dissertation. And when I was in Prague in 1972, I realized this is just not viable to continue to do research. The political situation was really awful. I didn't know the Czech language very well. I didn't need to for what I was doing. But if I expanded it, I would need to learn yeah. Czech. Yeah. And so I thought, I'm going to have to take my church history love somewhere else. 
And I thought to myself, Italy sounds good. <laughs> it's got the Pope and great food. Right, right? That's true. a good start. And I traveled around, and I had read Bonaventure's Life of St. Francis. And obviously, if you teach medieval history, you include Francis and the Franciscans. Sure. But I'd never taken him particularly seriously. But I found a copy of Bonaventure's Life of Francis in English while I was there. And I'd sit outside the Basilica, and then I'd go in and look at the pictures on the wall that depict some of those stories. And it sort of sank in. I'm beginning to wow. get this guy. Yeah. I'm beginning to figure out. And, and it's the art, really more than the text, that led me to want to know about this person. And so I developed the crazy idea. I want to find every painting of Francis done in Italy for the first hundred years after I, after he died. It took me 25 years, but I did publish a catalog. Wow, you, of, so you did that? Oh, yeah, I did it. Whew. I'm cl- I, I got to tell you, my favorite story, I'm, there's a painting on a cross way high up in a church, and I'm there with the priest, and I can't see the picture of Francis in this bigger picture because there are flowers on the, on the altar. And the priest finally said to me, take off your shoes and get up on the altar and photograph the painting. So I've got, I've got a unique picture of that, of that particular yes. but, but, you know, you have all these wonderful experiences with people, yeah. uh, you know, ladies who are caretakers who will, you know, go back in the back room to find things for me. So it was a, it was really a wonderful adventure that had a real spiritual dimension as well as an academic yeah, goal. Yeah. And the more I saw different ways Francis was interpreted and represented, the more multifaceted picture I had of him. Yeah. And that yeah. that was more exciting than discovering the paintings themselves. So so this uh, given this Oscar two question about uh, two things. One, the best or among the best biographies of St. Francis, but also where, where can people get this catalog of pictures of St. Francis? Okay, it's actually, it's actually published. It's actually published in Italy in English, and because we had a government grant to help un- underwrite it, it's not ridiculously expensive. It's got a picture of everyone but one that's been lost, and we just have no photograph of it. But it's called Images of St. Francis, and it's got a long subtitle, I forget what it is. It's okay. published by Olski, A-L-O-L-S-C-H-K-I, in Florence, Late 80s, I think, and um, maybe early 90s. And so it's still, it's still on Amazon. Okay. And to me right now, the best biography of Francis, written by a French scholar named André Vaucher, V-A-U-C-H-E-Z, and it's got some obvious title like Francis of Assisi, A Life. Yeah. I wrote a brief biography many years ago. I was asked by a press that no longer exists, but it's, it's uh, now part of the press in Minnesota, at the monastery in Minnesota. Uh, on, it's called Francis of Assisi, okay. The Way of Poverty and Humility. Okay. And it's in paperback and it's still in. It's still okay, in. very good. And uh, I, would, I would change a few things, but, you know, the worst thing to do is read a book you wrote 25 years ago. Oh, oh, I, oh I, I, no, I got to think about okay, it. Okay, okay. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. We just did our parish mission a couple weeks ago now, and I suggested that in the course of the mission that we do something like a, a little mini spiritual assessment of our lives. I don't have to show this to anybody, but a great chance for us just to, with real honesty, just between us and Jesus, ask ourselves some questions. First question, given the fact that half of Catholics don't think God is even personal, would be to ask ourselves that. Do I think God is personal? And then to ask myself, do I think a relationship with Jesus is possible? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? And if so, what's it look like? And then perhaps a little bit more awkwardly or painfully to ask Jesus from his perspective, what's the friendship that we have with him look like? How would he describe our friendship? 
with him. That might be a hard conversation to have. What is the most daunting petition in the Lord's Prayer? The Catholic Catechism says it is when we ask God our Father to forgive our sins as we forgive others, meaning if we do not forgive those who have sinned against us, we don't expect the Father to forgive us. God's outpouring of mercy cannot penetrate our hearts as long as we have not forgiven those who have trespassed against us. This is sobering. The Catechism says there has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of the heart in the holiness and the mercy and the love of God. Only the Holy Spirit can make our mind the same as the mind of Jesus Christ, who could forgive even those who crucified him. The heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit can turn injury into compassion, purifying the memory so as to transform the hurt into intercession. Forgiveness bears witness to the world that love is stronger than hate. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 22. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Bill Cook, Professor Emeritus of History at State University of New York, Geneseo, where he uh, taught medieval and Renaissance uh, Europe and church history. Uh, We were talking earlier about his work with the Bill Cook Foundation, helping poor children in 29 countries go to school. Um, He's author of several books, Medieval Worldview and Introduction. We talked earlier about his uh, collection of every image of St. Francis 
out there. Every painting but one, which is one. lost. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is still available uh, to get. And also, he is the author of a biography of St. Francis. And so this is You've got me thinking about the images now. I've never oh, thought good. of. I've never thought of yeah. looking at those images well, as a way of becoming acquainted uh, okay. with him. Well, let, let me give you a, another example of what's so exciting about doing the art. If you look at the cross that spoke to Saint Francis in San Damiano, if you look at it carefully, Christ is sort of standing straight on the cross. His eyes are open. There's no suffering on his face, mm. and yet his wounds in the side is there, so you know he's dead. But yeah. there, it's not a suffering Christ at okay. all. In fact, we call it a Christus triumphans, a triumphant okay. Christ. In 1236, when they, the friars first commissioned a cross for the Basilica of St. Francis, it's lost, but we have others by the same painter, they wanted a suffering Christ. And that became, that's what we're all used to. Okay. Right? We are used to seeing triumphant Christ on the yeah, cross. That's and right. that's because of the spirituality of St. Francis and his stigmata. And the stigmata, yeah. And, and so the whole way we, you know, when, when you see the, the cross from San Damiano, however much you love it or know what it is, it's really old-fashioned. But if you see a painting by Giotto, for example, a century later, he's painting this suffering Christ. Okay. And that's what we're used to seeing. And sometimes even they would put little St. Francis at the feet of the cross. <laughs> and and really? so the whole okay. way we look at the crucifixion was changed by the spirituality of Francis and the, the, the intelligence of the friars at the Basilica to know what they wanted to order as the main cross of the church. Oh, that's fascinating. That is fascinating. Uh, is he the first to have bear the stigmata? Yes. Yes, for, um, that's, that's right. And yeah. then, of course, there are several others. Yeah. Yes, he was the first. Yeah. Uh, did um, you know? We, we think of Saint Francis as a man of enormous uh, charisma. Uh, did he? Did he? And what was his relationship like with his first followers? It's very interesting because, you know, here's a guy who was from the richest merchant family in town, and he had ultimately rejected that. Beforehand, he had wanted to be a soldier. Yeah. And he rides off into battle against Perugia and ends up in prison for a year. And then he comes back and after sort of partly physically recovering, he says, no, I'm still going to be a soldier. And he goes off to fight actually in a papal army heading from heading from Umbria down to the south of Italy. He got as far as Spoleto, which is like getting from Ann Arbor, Detroit. Okay. Uh, not very far away, he got to Spoleto and turned around and came back. And in front of the Basilica in Assisi is, a, is an image of him in his military outfit on a horse, his head just slumped over. Mm. He's not going to do that. And he had to find what he, he'd rejected the two lifestyles that were available and attractive yeah, to that's him. That's right, yeah. And so he had to find something else to do. And we know that he, you know, he brooded some and went out in the woods. And, you know, if you're a dad, he's acting weird. Yeah. I think that's what we'd say. And then Francis wandered into this little church of San Damiano and saw that famous cross and, and had the experience of, having Jesus say, go and rebuild my church, which you can see is falling into ruin. And so he did that. And then he built church two and rebuilt church three. And that wasn't quite it either. And I think the incident with the leper that I talked about mm -hmm. is so important because, again, he said, once I experienced compassion for that leper, it was easy to leave the world and to find a new way of expressing that desire to fulfill Jesus's call to rebuild the church. It's not the buildings. It's yeah. not even the institution. I mean, he didn't go to the Fourth Lateran Council, which was held during his 
lifetime, he was going to build it as the church, meaning the ecclesia, the, the people the of people. God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he started at the bottom up. Okay. Again, he started with lepers, and he started with other kinds of beggars and poor people. And so he made a lot of, not, not mistakes, but he made a lot of things that he thought were going to be his life that ended up being temporary. He didn't regret them, I think, but he realized that was not what he, he was called for something else. And I think that openness to saying, I thought this is what God told me. Now I'm not so sure. I gotta gotta pray and think about it again. Yeah. And again, that second leper hug. Yeah. Get him yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, that sort of that sort of said that that's what I'm being called. To do. Yeah. I, so you know he he's got this background, um, upper class background, merchant class, yeah. anyways, and he's got the military background. Those are those are the inherited uh, op- social options for him. That's right. And they they they're not. Uh, he senses that's not where I'm going, and he has to wait for a new uh, door to open. Uh, and the Lord calls him uh, at the church there. Um, did he? When did he anticipate starting a movement, so to speak? Well, it's very interesting because here's this guy that's acting weirder and weirder in the right. especially as the son of the richest merchant in town. <laughs> and within a few years, two or three of his friends said, "I'm going to do that too." Gee. I mean, that's even more remarkable yeah, in the sense than the first guy, yeah. right? Yeah. And as I look back at it. As a historian, we're in an age of great change, because if you ask what was the grave sin of the noble class, it's pride. And so you see in cathedrals, you know, in, in pictures of hell, pride falling off his horse, right? Pride right. forth before a fall. Right. Right. But with the merchant class, the great, the great sin is avarice. And it's just that grabbing a hold of money. So in, in again, in medieval paintings, you'll see a guy with a money bag on his way to hell in a, in a last judgment. And so those two ways both had serious consequences. And Francis wanted to find a way to God without trying to do it by going through those traditional ways. I mean, knights, you know, knights kneel in church and pray to God and get knighted and all that sort of stuff. Sure. And merchants give money to the church. That's and right. so, I mean, yeah. you know, they, they, they do their thing. But Francis needed to find a way that wasn't apparently open to him or even possible. Yeah. But but even more remarkable is the other guy joined in. Yeah. And pretty soon, uh, we the, the story always is when, when they're 12, he decides to get organized. Whether whether that sort of tidying up the facts to make it fit the 12 apostles, right, right, right. hard to say. But at any, at any rate, um, that he decides to have a movement, and he writes down a few biblical quotations and takes them to Innocent III, <laughs> whom he should have never been able to get in to see. But he did. And... It's remarkable because on the way back, this is a story that didn't get told very often. They stopped in the city of Orvieto, did the Franciscan thing, slept in caves, you know, and they're talking. And one of the brothers said, what do we do next? And nobody had an answer. They really had, they, they didn't plan what their lives were going to be like. Or they what just left the Pope. That, that's right. They, they're following God, but they don't know where that's going to lead. And they were comfortable with that. They yeah. didn't have to have a master plan. Yeah. yeah. And it evolved over time. I mean, Francis would have never thought, I think, about going off to visit Crusaders, but he did that. Mm-hmm. And a number of other things that he did that, that probably would not have been in his in his vision as a young man. But he was always open to the fact that I know I'm now on the right track, but still, it's going to go a lot of different directions. Yeah. Uh, some are going to be preachers, some are going to study, as I mentioned. So it's going to become a much broader movement 
than Francis knew it was. But, but he he didn't have all the answers when he went to the Pope. Yeah, probably glad the Pope didn't ask him a lot of questions. <laughs> so so uh, when he by the time he dies, is it still very open ended? It's beginning to change, even in his own time. In okay. fact, this is this is perhaps somewhat unfair to say, but in one sense, some of the friars actually tried to fire him when he was alive as the head of the order. <laughs> Uh, because the order wow. was going in a lot of different ways. There were more educated people becoming members of the order, like Anthony Padua, for example. Um, and and they thought he was not the guy to lead that. And there really were, were some debates about all this. And Francis even tells a, a story. You know, one night I go knock at the door of a, of a friar's house, and I'm this grubby little guy coming in, and it's rainy and muddy and everything. And they say, we don't want people like you in. And they slam the door on him, and he said, that is perfect joy i've experienced <laughs> i've experienced what jesus rejection I, what yeah. that leper has experienced and that that to find joy in that humiliation wow uh, i mean he's always growing and really doesn't know what's next and it's good that there were planners in the next generation although they didn't all agree with one another as you can imagine but he wasn't a planner yeah okay uh, he was always open to the spirit to the immediate and that's one of his joys, because we, we all like master plans. Right, yeah. Or In the old days, we had triptych when we traveled anywhere. He didn't have triptych. <laughs> not a triptych for the travel, and not a triptych for life. You know, I haven't thought of triptychs for a while. But yes, I remember them. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me ju jump to another uh, story in his life, though. You reminded me of this. What is, what is it, uh, from a historian's perspective, what about the encounter with the sultan? It's an extraordinary yeah. encounter, obviously. He, go he goes to Egypt, which is, by the way, a pretty bizarre thing to do yeah. for a guy to kind of just get on a boat, not being able to pay, by the way, uh, <laughs> and, and go off to Egypt. And as far as we know, because he never said anything between 1215, let's say, and the time he went to Egypt about the crusade. Well, he was not preaching against crusades, is what I'm saying. And he goes probably to, 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 you know, to comfort and console the crusaders. After all, they're taking a lot of hits, too. Sure. And he's stunned by the, their behavior. Yeah. And so he decides... Which crusade was this? This is the Sixth Crusade. Okay, so it's deteriorating yeah. from the first. Fifth, fifth yeah. Crusade. In fact, okay. Fifth Crusade. Yeah. This is after the Big Four. Yeah. yeah. And so he decides to do this, you know, quite ridiculous thing in a way, go talk to the Sultan. Now, we don't even know how they communicated, because obviously they didn't speak languages in right. common. There must have been some people around to translate. But, of course, the great shock must have been for Francis and for the Sultan is they like each other. Yeah. And one people, some people think that the Sultan liked him because he seemed to resemble in some of his practices the Sufis, which were a fairly new form that Islam was taking yeah. at the time. And by the more, way, a more mystical form of Islam. Yes, that's, yeah. that's right. And, and yeah. you know, the Sufis were sort of grubby and, and, and you know, walking around in, in very plain garments and yes, all okay. that sort of stuff. But we actually know because there's a there's a, a tomb, his tomb in Egypt, and it says that he talks about in in his in, in the inscription on his tomb of this meeting with this Francis. Really? Yeah. So we actually have one piece of a record from the other side, and one thing that the writers say, probably because they have to say this about it, is the the Sultan offered him great gifts, but of course he wouldn't take any. But in Assisi, you will see it in the lower church. There is an as an ivory card that almost certainly came back. Maybe Francis didn't personally carry it, but one of the other friars did. Wow! So we we have that as another reminder of the possibilities. And I got to tell you, I work in Africa, 
and we have a, a there's a movement there of Muslims and Christians getting together. And yeah. I've, I've spoken to them and told that story from Francis's side. Oh, that's nice. And uh, it's it's very exciting to see that's still at work today in a multi-religious society like we have in much of Africa. Bill Holden's here. Got to take a break. My guest is uh, Professor William Cook of uh, State University of New York, Geneseo. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The church isn't saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw out all the media. Don't use the media. What the Pope is saying that make sure that what you are doing is enabling yourself and others to encounter Christ more deeply. And you can't do that unless you reach out. You have to reach out to God first. You have to encounter Him in the Eucharist, in that personal relationship. And then you pray, you reflect, and then you go. In my book, Beyond Sunday, Becoming a 24-7 Catholic, I talk about the three M's of faith, meeting, mercy, and mission. You meet and encounter Christ. You enter into a personal relationship with Him. He gives you mercy. And then what do you do? You just sit there and say, oh, thanks, Jesus, see you later. No, you go out on mission exactly as the woman at the well did. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This strange beatitude reminds us that Jesus is challenging us with his ways to heaven on a new exodus. We're leaving behind the Egypt of this world to find the eternal paradise of heaven. When we tend to think of happiness, we tend to think of it in a self-centered way, a possession of a temporary good or passing fancy. But Jesus is calling us into eternal happiness. And actually, morality is a search for happiness, says Dominican priest Surveys Pinkhairs. 
We're looking to be happy, and a lot of times we end up in dead-end roads that don't lead us to where we want to go. How can we be blessed when we mourn? In sorrow and difficulty, hardship and cross, we are called closer to Jesus. It's God's fingerprint in our heart reminding us that we're made for eternal happiness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 22. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Dr. William Cook. We are talking about St. Francis. He, in fact, is in town here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, at St. Francis of Assisi Parish. They've been celebrating their patron. I'm thinking St. Francis, I mean, would you, is he the most popular saint, do you think? Yes, I do think yeah. so, and and just sort of universally celebrated. Yeah. And, and and Protestants love St. Francis. I mean, there's St. There's Francis Episcopal churches and so on yeah. and so forth, in a way that really no other saint after the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, really really is so universally accepted. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I thought, too. Popular renditions, you know, St. Francis, you know, you think of the Zeffirelli film, uh, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, does that get anything right? I like the film, by the way, but no, essentially, um, <laughs> no, that isn't that isn't quite fair. But yeah, I mean, it, it really—I mean, he really is the the '70s flower child, uh, which is not surprising since the movie was made in that in that period of time. But it still it still gets some things about him, I think, that are attractive. But no, I think we we really need to update that image. Yeah. The, the song's nice and 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 everything else, and and I really did enjoy the movie. But I think we need to get beyond that because there are actually more serious things to talk about that are relevant to us than just going out to talking to birds and whatever. Yeah. For one thing, and I emphasized this last night in, in, in my talk, Francis didn't just like pretty birds. He liked all birds. And when you, there, I, if you go around souvenir shops in Assisi, this makes me crazy, you, get, you can buy your souvenir, Francis with the bunny. Francis with the lamb, Francis with the squirrel, Francis with, you know, cute little birds, doves usually, and so on and so forth. Francis loved all animals. He would take worms off the road so that a cart coming along wouldn't run over the worm. So he, he had that kind of reverence for oh, he did, life he did. in all its forms. He did. The, you know, the worm, again, his, his logic is very simple. God made me, God made the worm. Yeah. The worm is my brother. We are creatures. That, yeah. That's the way it works. Uh, and and it's that simple in some ways, and there, I saw a stained glass window. I can't remember where I saw it of Francis, and Francis with a spider and another bug. I thought that's it. I like <laughs> that's that what you like. because you know he he wouldn't have crushed a bug, mm-hmm. um, and he also says in the canticle the creatures blessed be fair weather and all weather, and then the last thing he called brother or sister is sister bodily death. Mm. So yeah. the song is more about about more things than just, and, and his, his spirituality was about more things than liking pretty things. Yeah. Liking pretty things is easy. Yes, yes. Liking worms is harder. Yeah. Liking, liking bugs is harder. And I, I think it's really important to remember that everything as a creature of God is my brother or my sister. The reason he has the two brother and sister part is because Italians are a gendered language. So every noun is either masculine or feminine. feminine. So it's brother-son, because it's il sole, and sister-moon, la luna. And so it's gendered, and we wouldn't sing it in such gendered language, probably, because English doesn't have that. 
but but again, it's he 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 loves all weather. Yeah. Uh, because again, if God made me, God made that beetle across. So he, I mean, really. What characterizes his spirituality is a celebration of all creation. Yes, celebration in, 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 in all of its aspects. Yeah. It's, it's positive and, and it's negative aspects. And a lot of this comes from the, the famous story of Francis at the Christmas crib of Greccio, uh, you know, where he brings the ox and the ass into the church for the Christmas Eve Mass. And the, usually when it's painted, there's, there's a picture of Jesus in the, in the cradle. Yeah. Well, there, he didn't put a doll in there. That was his vision of it. But anyway... The point of it all was, do you know what happens when you put an an ox and an ass indoors for a couple hours? We know that. He knew it better than we did. I never lived in a farm. Right, right. right. He knew that. And that was the point, because when God became human, God could have chosen to become human anywhere, any place, king, totally good health, you know, whatever it is, right? God chose to be born in a stable that was smelly Mm -hmm. and dirty and I think what Francis would kind of say is that's really all you need to know. Interesting. When, that, yeah. that if you want to, if the virtue of humility is because God is the one who's ultimately humble, because He chooses to enter in creation with us in that form, and and so I, I think that that really does, that that dignifies everything uh, to say that God, if God entered in the lowliest, then the lowliest is holy yeah. because it's the dwelling place of God. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't hang out in palaces. Yeah, and it's in, in its own way. It, it's also the message of the Magnificat. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly yeah. so. Yeah, exactly so. Uh, I, I just noticed in my, my notes. I'm not sure where I got these, but I have a number of different things. He was painted by Giotto, written about by Dante. What do you think of G.K. Chesterton's? Uh, I love G.K. Chesterton's yeah. piece. Yeah, you know, in, in some ways. I guess, as a scholar, you'd say it's dated. Right. Uh, there, we know a lot more things about Francis because you know when the earliest two biographies of Francis, both written by a friar named Thomas of Celano, both of them were ordered destroyed in the 1260s by Saint Bonaventure. I didn't know that because the two had somewhat different visions of Francis, and therefore, as factions formed in the order, uh, this is my Francis, this is my Francis yep. over here. Yep. And so, when Bonaventure wrote the sort of master life based on those two works by Thomas of Celano, he ordered that the other works be destroyed, and they weren't rediscovered until the 19th century. Okay. So okay. we there's a lot we just didn't know about Francis until people started digging around those old manuscripts in the in the you know in, in the uh, Basilica in Assisi and other places so in many ways it, we've not had a steady range of scholarship on Francis but it's really all blossomed and now all the early sources through the middle of the 14th century uh, were put together by New City Press in three volumes and it's volume one is the saint volume two is the prophet uh, I, I forget the, the subtitles mm-hmm. but it's three volumes and then there's a fourth volume that's the index of, of these three volumes and it's, it's, it's uh, again, published by New City Press yeah. in New York, which is a Catholic publication. And that is a complete compendium of all the, of sources. All the early sources we have. That wow. includes letters written that mention, I saw him in Bologna. Yeah. You know, uh, all that sort of stuff, including the, the little flowers of St. Francis and all, all the others. And some fairly well unknown things, including all of Francis's writings and all of the liturgical texts that the early Franciscans had. So it's a wonderful, complete thing. It was done by a series of Franciscans, one Capuchin and one OFM and one conventual. 
So the, the three main branches of the Franciscan tradition for men came together to edit this. To do this. And Very it's good. really a wonderful collection. Uh, I want to come back, by the way, and talk about liturgy. But before I go there, I, I look at these notes I have here. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois held him up in his commencement address of 1907 as a model for young black men. That's right. Is that true? Yes. Oh, that's absolutely true. <laughs> it was a sermon he gave, at a, or a, a speech he gave at a black high school. I should know the name of it, but I don't remember. And you can look it up in the in the works of W.B. Du Bois. Yeah, I mean, here's this guy who, you know, was uh, ended up a Marxist and, you know, left the United States sure. and surrendered his citizenship. But he saw something beautiful in Francis, too. And he never became Catholic. He wasn't tempted right. by right. that. But he saw something beautiful and universal in Francis. And it's a wonderful piece. And I got to say, I think W.B. Du Bois sort of gets Francis. Uh, <laughs> That's I, 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 I think read that. It's a wonderful speech to read. Um, liturgy. When we think of uh, St. Francis, we think of, again, the image of kind of carefree, frolicking uh, in nature. Not the kind of thing you, you don't think of him as being concerned for liturgical norms or rubrics. What was his relationship like to the liturgy? He was. Um, and it's, it's interesting to say that, you know, up above Assisi is a hermitage that was built by Benedictines, originally the monastery, now the Fran Franciscans have it, but he very much respected the monastic tradition. And what he needed and what, what was developed in his lifetime, partly from his own writing, was a liturgy that fit an active rather than a contemplative order. I mean, all the orders at this time, with, with something of the exception of the Augustinian canons, were all contemplative orders. Mm -hmm. And so... You can't be in church eight times a day right. if you're out preaching not just to birds, but also to people. And uh, you can't do that. So it's a, it's a simplified literature and, and liturgy. And uh, but it's very beautiful. And again, those, are also, those documents are also all in that collection of Franciscan sources that I mentioned. So he, was, he, he knew the need to simplify. Mm -hmm. but, he, but this was a religious order, that he, and he would not abandon any sort of liturgical thing and say, okay, yeah, we don't have to do that. Right, Just come to right. Mass on Sunday. That was not Francis. Okay, yeah. That no. was not Francis. Very good. Um, do you think that, uh, is there something in the life of St. Francis today for uh, the Church's relationship to, I won't say Islam, I'll say Muslims? Yes. I mean, to start with, I think it's fair to say, of course, for Francis, the Sultan was a brother. Yeah, that's right. right. I mean, you, you got if you start there, a lot of different consequences. Start, start with creation. I yes, mean, this yes. is really it, it. Really, this is really an important thing, right? <laughs> right. right exactly. So, and and so that that's important to say. And I, I want to tell you for a minute about an organization I work with of Christians and Muslims in Kenya, uh, called the Damie, called the Damietta Project, uh -oh. named for where Francis was. And the, the, here's, the way, here's the way it works. See if this makes sense to you. I, I think it makes a lot of sense in this world. Muslims and Christians live in this big slum. They need clean water. Yeah. They need other things. There's no Christian clean water or Muslim clean water. So <laughs> right. if you start working together on things that benefit everybody, then you can disagree in, in using the old phrase without being disagreeable. Right. right. And that's the idea. And I, I came and talked to this group. And uh, told them stories about Francis and helped to push that forward a little bit. There's a movement that started in South Africa and now is in a lot of of uh, parts of Africa. It's called the Damietta Project. You can look, you can look it up online if people want to. 
and um, it's really beautiful to see some of the work they've done. Yeah. You know, we got we got to clean up streets. There aren't Muslim streets and Christians. There's just streets. That's right. That's right. Um, we got to stop the trash being dumped because they're not dumping it on the Christian or the Muslim part. They're dumping it in the slum where we live together. So I think so much of what Francis would say is it's really good to sit down and talk and mm-hmm. respect each other. And of course, we know that John Paul II. Uh, participated and called that sort of gathering of the world's religions right. in Assisi. This yeah. has been repeated by the other pontiffs. And that was a, that's a beautiful moment to see him standing there, not just with the Archbishop of Canterbury, but with Buddhists and Muslims yeah. and, and, and Hindus and whatever, and saying, maybe we ought to start, like Francis did, start with what we have in common. Start with creation. Yeah, yeah. That's we're, creation. we're all creatures. That's right. Exactly so. I want to make sure we close with uh, going back to your foundation. Okay. Uh, tell people again, 29 countries you're right. in. At BillCookFoundation.org. So it's, it's really easy to find. And we work in, we try to do many different things. You know, you think a college professor would want to send students to university. Well, we do that. I have a Cambodian student living in my house at the moment. In <laughs> fact, he's going to graduate this year. But we have a program for Agent Orange victims in Laos. We have a program for Down syndrome kids in Peru. Uh, so we do education in the very broadest sense. We help to educate mothers uh, in, Zim- in Zimbabwe, for example. Wow. So. Our, our idea of education really is leading out of ignorance. That's what the word education okay. means, after all, to yeah. lead out. And so it's, it's BillCookFoundation.org. Right. People can go over there, learn about it, yep. and, and we've support got, it. We've got a nice website. I didn't build it. Uh, one of my former students <laughs> did, by golly. Yeah. Bill, thanks so much. A pleasure, Al, as always. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, Teach Me to Pray, the free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not. If I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I've got a vent. Is this so? It's old theory, somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's old theory. It's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers and it's not good for the venter. Venting may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say before you vent. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I come from the other side of the tracks, see? My uncle used to have slot machines. Put one nickel in and it's emptied. And I brought him home in a bag and my mother looked at me. Where did you get all that money? I said, I won him. You didn't win him. He fixed the machine. I didn't care if he fixed the machine or not, you know? EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic.
thanks for joining us over the last two hours. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and follow up on those conversations. We will have links to Bill Cook's work as well as to Carlos Ayers' uh, excellent book, Reformations of the Early Modern World, which you can find in the online bookstore at AveMariaRadio.net. And uh, we are really enjoying this countdown. Hope you're enjoying it, too. Looking back on some great conversations like the one we had with John Zarnetsky about the worst Supreme Court decisions of all time. We also talked with Stan Butt, who took us through a year with Cosette uh, from the beloved story of Les Miserables. Roger Nutt helped us understand the sacrament of anointing. And Tom Madden explored the question, was Constantine a Christian and by what sign did he conquer? That's just a few of the interviews we've heard, heard so far. Got lots of other great stuff coming up as well. And I uh, cannot go off the air without once again congratulating our good friends at Divine Mercy Radio in Kansas, who are celebrating 13 years on the air with us. And so once again, congratulations to Lester, Antonetta Robin, Nathan Lang, and everybody else at Divine Mercy Radio from your friends at EWTN. And while we're at it, congratulations to Armor of God Catholic Radio in Texas. They have added two new signals, KTON in Cameron, Texas, 1330 AM, and also 93.9 FM in Temple, Texas. So a great job by Tom and Anna Marie McNew and everybody else who are working so hard to bring Catholic radio to the people of Texas. As we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls on all things Catholic that's always worth tuning into. If you have questions on any kind of Catholic faith issue, give them a call at Catholic Answers. We'll be back tomorrow with more continuing this crest in the afternoon countdown. And, uh, more to talk about and more to see as we continue our way and our approach to Advent. Christmas is coming up. Have a great evening and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506. Or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506. Or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.